And I was thinking some of the sweetest words, some of the sweetest words that I heard as a child were spoken at the dinner table. You know, sitting there with my parents on my left and right, my brother across from me. My parents knew that maybe I was having a difficult time, you know, weary. They could see it in my face. I was struggling. And my mom, in her compassion, she would turn to me and say, Brian, you don't have to eat the rest of your vegetables. You can go. You're released. Because Brussels sprouts can feel quite the burden to a 10-year-old. But in all seriousness, my question to you is, when have you felt the joy? When was the last time that you felt real joy of being released from some chore, some obligation, some burden, some debt? Right? That's forgiveness. It's this decision and promise to release a person by canceling the real debt the person has with you. I really owed it to my parents to eat those vegetables. But I was released. Forgiveness is all about release. And just as we need food and water to survive our daily bread, as we looked at last week, we need forgiveness daily from God, from one another. And that's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, when he is laying out these essential building blocks to how we have daily prayer, he leads us to say, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And that's the petition we're looking at this morning as we continue in our study of the Lord's Prayer. And what we're going to do, hopefully, my aim, is to answer two questions as it relates to this petition. I want to answer how, how can I better see my debts right? in, order, in order to have a deeper, richer, more authentic time of confession with the Lord. And we want to answer how can I also have a forgiving spirit. And so this has been our practice through this series uh, would you join me as we read together the Lord, the prayer that our Lord taught us? Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So several years ago, I was serving as a hospital chaplain one summer, uh, along with other seminary students. And one day, uh, I walked into our, our break room, and I heard one of these students, he was listening to Celtic music, and I was somewhat, not, not disappointed, not judging, but I was somewhat surprised by his taste in music. And so I inquired. I figured there's got to be a story here. And he told me that several years ago, his grandfather had discovered the family had Irish ancestry. And so his grandfather got super enthused about everything 
Irish. And they went to Irish festivals, they went to concerts, the whole deal. Turns out though, with a bit more research, this family had no Irish ancestry. You see, for this family, the consequences of having an inaccurate knowledge of their history, their ancestry, their roots, it was just this lingering taste for Celtic music. And if you think about it, that's not really the worst thing that could happen to somebody. But what if you, what if you have an inaccurate knowledge of your spiritual history? Right? What if you think you're something when in reality you're not? And here's my point. If we don't know our true history, if we don't know our true history, the magnitude of our debt with God will remain hidden from us. You know, you and I can get quite creative. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but as a society, we're really good. We're really good at pulling the wool over our eyes when it comes to the truth about debt. Have you noticed that? And we convince ourselves, we convince ourselves that it's manageable. And we might even go as far as saying that that debt doesn't even really exist. Right? If we get our history wrong, if we don't go back to the beginning, right, we'll end up thinking our debt with God is manageable. We can get on a payment plan Right? Even worse, we'll think that it's not there. That there's nothing to worry about. So friends, when you consider your sins, right, you consider those, those debts that you have with God, the question is, like, what conclusion do you, do you draw about yourself? Where did I come from? What's been true of me all along? And in Psalm 51, the greatest confession ever penned, King David is seeking to answer that question. And he's, he's examining why he just committed adultery and then tried to conceal his adultery with murder. And so he begins looking back at his spiritual history. Where do I come from? What are my roots? And listen to the conclusion he draws in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's saying that when he committed adultery, when he orchestrated this murder, he's recognizing, ah, I didn't go off the rails. I didn't even act out of character. He's saying that from the beginning, he was born off the rails. And that these sins were actually in keeping with his character. Because he was born with this desire. He came into this world with a, a heart fully capable of committing evil. Right? Verse 5 is saying that the seeds of adultery and murder were present in David at the very beginning. Right, David's adultery, it was real. It was a sin that we know had real consequences in his life and in the lives of those around him. It was truly a sin 
needing God's forgiveness. But do you realize why David pursued Bathsheba in the first place? Right Before he embraced her, he had already turned from something. Right In his heart, he had already said, Bathsheba's embrace is better than God's. You see, we're born with, with hearts ready and primed to say the same thing. And so we say that this, this pleasure that the world has to offer is better than God. And that this response that I, that I want to give, this response is wiser than how God instructs me to respond. We say to ourselves that this glance, this glance will be more satisfying than beholding God. Our hearts, writes Paul Tripp, he says our hearts are always the ultimate cause of our responses and where the spiritual battle is fought. In Jesus' words, all our evil comes from within, out of our very hearts. That there's this evil, this willingness to reject God, to replace God, to relegate God, to remove God. Right? From our birth, that's what we've done. And it's a gloomy picture, isn't it? But when you see your real history, when you see, ah, this wasn't just a slip up, this was in keeping with, with a heart that's been willing and ready to violate God's law and spurn his love, here's what begins to happen. You begin to have a, a deeper and more authentic time of confession, of repentance. And it's because for the first time you aren't naive about your true capacity to sin, right? With a heart that can resist God in this way, you know, I am capable of egregious things. You see, when David grasped that from his birth, he was capable of things like adultery and murder. He began to see how deep, truly how deep his need for forgiveness truly ran to the core of who he was. You know, on a weekly basis, I know I need forgiveness for my impatience. But if you think about where does my impatience come from? I already told my wife I was going to say this, so I have permission. Does my impatience come from my wife's ongoing struggle to anticipate just how long things are going to take. And I sat on that question for a while. And the answer is no. Right? My impatience comes from my heart that turns to God and says, your providence, your ruling of my life is wrong. And if you were good, and if you were sovereign, and if you were really in control, someone like me wouldn't have to wait. And so I deserve, it is my right, to be angry and exasperated. Do you see, before I'm impatient with anyone, 
I have already sinned against God. And that is true of all of our sins. Our debt is so great because each debt can be traced back to a belittlement, to a mischaracterization, to a rejection of just how truly perfect and holy and majestic and loving our God is. You see, if we were people generally inclined to do what God commands, but you know, we just have a few blips, some off days, God's forgiveness wouldn't be all that impressive. God's forgiveness, the forgiving of our debts is staggering because God forgives his enemies He forgives those who've had, since their birth, this desire, this readiness to overthrow him, to spurn his love, to live as if he wasn't really good. So this morning, maybe you've never truly asked for God's forgiveness. You never really saw yourself as a debtor because you can look at your life and feel like I'm doing pretty well. I'm better than most. But friend, if you've gone one day, this is the truth, if you've gone one day without giving to God what he's rightfully owed, right? Our undying, undivided affection, our our complete and utter loyalty. You have a debt you can't pay. Do you see that what David wrote all those years ago is true of you? From your birth, you've lived according to the desires of your heart and not the desires of God's. And so your debt, your debt is larger than you can comprehend. And every debt deserves judgment. It deserves an eternal judgment. If we've sinned against an infinite God, that can be the only payment. But it's also true that there's not a debt you have. There's not a debt you have this morning. There's not a debt that you've accumulated this week that can't be forgiven. I love what the Westminster Confession puts it. I know it's old. It can be a hard document, but it's so beautiful when it says things like this. No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation nor is any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. You know, if you've ever been in the position where you've had to pay someone's debts, you know that ultimately, as you pay someone's debt, you have a limit. Because whenever you pay a debt, you're poorer than you were before. Not so with God. It's this strange paradox, really, that when God pays our debts, you could almost say that he becomes richer because he gains us. Debt, debt is a crushing thing for us. And Satan would have us believe, he would like to convince us that the best way to deal with it is just to keep it hidden or to pretend that we're whole. 
But listen to what David says in Psalm 32. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If, you're, if you feel as if you're wasting away under this debt, under the weight of your sins, if you feel that conviction, that is a good thing. And it is a good thing because there's an actual answer. There's an actual way to find release. And that is by turning to the Lord and confessing to him what he already knows is true about you. Friends, there is a way for you this morning to have release, to find forgiveness. Now, you might be thinking, well, if I am a Christian, right, why am I asking for the forgiveness of my debts? Because you could say, well, doesn't Paul say that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? Yes. And it's true that God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. God, this morning, if you are in Christ, is not dealing with you according to your past sins. He's not dealing with you according to your present sins. And his promise is he's not going to deal with you according to your future sins. God has forgiven completely our rebellion that has flowed from our hearts. And we have this assurance that he's at work. He's at work to overcome that residual hostility that we have towards him. But it's also true, borrowing a metaphor from Sinclair Ferguson, that sin, he says, sin remains like a squatter in our lives. And squatters are notoriously difficult to evict. Right? So when we ask for forgiveness as Christians, we aren't, what we aren't doing is asking God, our judge, to declare us innocent once again. He has already done that when we've come to faith. He has declared us righteous. He has declared us innocent. What we are doing in the work of confessing and repenting is is that is our work to evict sin from our lives. If you notice, we never, we never turn away from the things that we don't name, those things that we keep in the dark. And because we have God's eternal security as his children, when we confess our sins, when we bring to him the ugly truth, you don't have to worry about being disowned, disinherited, removed from the family of God. Kevin DeYoung sums it up well. He says, the prayer, forgive us our debts, is not, it is not the cry of a frightened litigant. It's the cry of a loving child. So friends, when you confess your sins, the promise is that God restores to us the joy of salvation. Right? Confessing and repenting is a way that we get to experience all over again the greatness of the gospel. 
Right? We are refreshed. We hear that assurance of pardon. We are refreshed with God's favor. And so really, we confess our sins for the sake of our joy, right? So that we will be happier in God than in our sins. So don't think that confession is ever going to be impediment to your joy. On the other side of a deep, hard, convicting confession is happiness and delight in our Father. And so that's how we see our debts well. We go back to the beginning. We see our real roots. We lay before God the whole truth, trusting his promise to forgive. But we notice this petition doesn't stop there, which means the sermon doesn't stop here. When we pray this, when we say, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, when we say those words, we must not say them in vain. We must not say them flippantly because what we're doing is committing ourselves to a lifelong project of cultivating, of developing the kind of character, the disposition, the inclination that we find in God. And so if God stands ready to forgive, if God's heart is inclined to forgive and release his enemies, if God is, is willing to reconcile with us and be in relationship with us, what we're saying when we say those words is we're saying that we also, we are pledging to stand ready to forgive. We're saying our hearts, God, will stand ready to release our enemies, to cancel debts. We're committing ourselves to be people who work for reconciliation, for the restoring of broken relationships. In a sense, we're asking God to forgive us. This is almost alarming. We're asking God to forgive us to the extent that we forgive others, to offer us mercy to the same degree that we offer mercy to others. And so you can see how important it is to get a solid answer to the question, how is it then? How can I have a forgiving spirit? And there's no better answer to that question than the one, there's one that comes later in Matthew. In chapter 18, Jesus is instructing his disciples about how sin is to be confronted in the church. And then in verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and he, and he asks this question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? See, many of you know quite well, many of you know quite well what it's like to be wronged again and again. And so you sympathize with Peter. Peter is asking a genuine, honest question. It's a question that we've all had. So we've all been sinned against, and so we ask, when when do I get to stop being hurt? Right? And when, when can I defend myself? And when do I get to walk away? 
But then comes Jesus' answer. He says, I do not say to you, Peter, Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that can't be the answer Peter wanted to hear. Right? When we think about the wrongs done to us, that's not what we're excited to hear. We want to know when we can walk away. How is it that I can protect myself? And even deep down, we want to know when. When can I return the hurt? But see, Jesus' answer reveals his greater desire for us. He wants us, as one author points out, to be profoundly, persistently merciful, to be unrestrained in our forgiveness. That's his desire. But what Jesus knows is that's, that is not our inclination. He knows something else comes much easier, something that we never have to work for. Revenge, retaliation, self-protection. You see, and I've never noticed this before until reading an article and preparing for this sermon. that point out that Jesus' number, 77 times, is not random. But what Jesus is probably doing here is alluding, he's pointing back to another story in the Bible. It's a story all about revenge, and it's a story that captures what goes on in our hearts. See, back in Genesis, in chapter four, we're introduced to a man named Lamech. He was one of Cain's descendants, the same Cain who murdered his brother. And if you remember, after Cain killed his brother, he then feared being killed. And so in a display of God's grace, Cain received God's protection. And God promised Cain that if anyone were to kill him, God's vengeance would be sevenfold. But when we hear from Lamech several generations later, we can hear ourselves. So listen to the boast that Lamech makes to his wives. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He knows that in Peter and in all of us, there is this desire to be like Lamech, to get our own revenge, to protect ourselves at all costs, to kill, whether physically, with words, to kill those who've wounded us. And when Jesus tells Peter to forgive 77 times, he's telling Peter, Peter, my desire for you, my desire for you is that you would be free of that tendency. You see, Jesus came to undo. He came to reverse and heal that Lamech-like tendency that we have to utterly destroy those who've hurt us. And I know, and I recognize that forgiving our debtors, forgiving people who've seriously wronged us, who've betrayed us, who've caused us real pain, 
This is a difficult concept, and I, I recognize that there are, there are complexities to each case. It's why you have pastors, it's why you have elders, it's why you have fellow church members to work these things out together. Right? Knowing what forgiveness looks like in a particular situation, I want you to know, it, yes, it requires wisdom, it requires time and prayer, it's searching the scriptures. And so while forgiveness can take on different forms given the situation, what Jesus is saying here is take a step back and see the bigger picture. See that what runs through us is this Lamech-like tendency to reject forgiveness up front, to say that the only answer to this situation is my revenge, the only way that this could ever be made right is for me to inflict greater pain than I received. And so how does a Lamech-like heart change? How can we have a forgiving, merciful spirit? And the answer is because Jesus is a better Lamech. Think about it. Who was wounded? Who was struck? Who was killed? See, on the, Christ, on the cross, Christ was wounded. He was struck down. He was killed by our sins. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he sent his apostles out not on a mission of vengeance, but to proclaim forgiveness in his name. Can you hear Jesus' boast? What does he celebrate in? See, Lamech promised. Lamech promised to kill the person who wounded him, who struck him. Jesus' promise is to forgive those responsible for his death. How can you have a forgiving spirit? How can your tendency to always want to get revenge, to hold on to a grudge, how can it change? Right, a forgiving spirit, it is the fruit of the merciful Christ dwelling in the hearts of his people. Friends, we can forgive because in Christ, we are these new creations. And our resemblance to Lamech, our similarity to him, our commonality with him, it is fading away because we are being transformed more and more into Christ's image. See, Christ in you, his grace, his mercy, his love, his life, Christ in you is the only resource you need to forgive. Christ in you is what you need to be able to pray for those who've wronged you, to work as you can to restore and heal relationships. Christ in you is the power to let go of bitter grudges, 
to finally release your debtors. And I know that Christ's desire for you is one that does not come easily. His desire is contrary to the spirit of this world, a world that is just stuck in the cycle of exacting revenge. Christ's desire is this radical thing that you would forgive from your heart. And that does not mean that Christ is asking you to minimize sin. And he's not saying that there aren't consequences to sin. He's not saying that you ought to make it easier for people to sin against you. This does not mean that you must forget or somehow downplay the wrong that's actually been done to you. His desire, though, is that our commitment to forgive as we have been forgiven, that that would be our heartbeat. That mercy, his mercy at work in us would be the thing that controls us. So is that how people know you? Friends, do they know that your boast, your boast isn't in revenge, but that your boast, your pride, is in Jesus Christ who came to forgive, to cancel the debt of debtors like us. Let's pray that it would be so. Lord Jesus, thank you for the giving of your life, the shedding of your blood, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, as we look upon you, as we feed upon your words, we ask that you would remove from our hearts all those desires for revenge, for retaliation, and that you would bring forth your spirit in us. We ask in your name, amen.